You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. This morning, I want to talk about this idea of knowing and not knowing. And I want to be as practical as I can. I think as I engage with and interact with Christians who are struggling through different seasons of life or circumstances, whether it's uh, personal health or the health of a family member or a loved one or relational stress or trauma or financial woes or just stresses with life, with work, with community, all those things. I hear people say all the things, guys, I, I, I just don't know. I don't know how this is going to go. And so I'm a little bit frantic. I'm a little bit frenetic. I feel totally exposed and vulnerable. I don't know how this is going to go. And I'll hear people say things like this all the time. Yeah, I know that God is good and he's, you know, great and all that. And I know that he can work this out. I just don't know that he will. Have you ever been there? I've got news for you. If you haven't, then it's only a matter of moments before you are. Where you know, yeah, yada, 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 God is good, God is great, he's glorious, he's gracious, all those things, but you've got a real situation right now. You're not sure how it's going to go, and you're not really sure that God even cares or that he would, would do something if he could. But what if you knew? What if you were convinced? That's what I want to talk about this morning. It's sort of the heart of the passage that we're going to walk through this morning. What if you were convinced about how much God actually loves you? What if you were convinced? Because here's why this matters. A person who is convinced begins to have convictions. And those convictions are what drives our conduct. It's not just wanting to be different, wanting to be better. That never actually changes anybody. It's your convictions that come from that which convinces you that actually impacts your conduct. And so this morning, I hope and pray as I have been all this week thinking about this passage, thinking about this group of people, that we will walk out of this room different, that we will be more convinced of the certainties of what God's going to reveal to us so that our convictions are enlarged so that our conduct is actually impacted. We, we want that to occur. That's the whole point of why we gather together to worship, to respond to who God is, what he has done, so that we can catch a glimpse of his purpose and his plan for our lives. So this morning, the idea is that we would be convinced. It's the title of the sermon. We're going to see that right here in the passage. What if all of these people were actually convinced of how much God loves them? It would unleash all these lives to be lived for that which they were created. It would unleash all these lives to actually live lives free of fear and bondage. So our, our big idea for this morning is actually an, a very old one. It comes out of our faith tradition from hundreds of years back. It goes very simply like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I hope you've heard this before. If you haven't, then I'll take credit for it. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is true 24-7. Not just 
in the hereafter and in the sweet by and by. In the here and the immediate now, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, despite how you might feel from moment to moment. So with all that as a lead up, let me invite you to open your Bibles, if you've got them, to the book of Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to conclude Romans chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 31, and we'll read all the way through verse 39. It has been said multiple times by many commentators, theologians, academics, and scholars that the book of Romans is really sort of, um, it's the Mount Everest of the Bible. It's got it all. It is the gospel of God. And that specifically chapter 8 is sort of the summit of the book of Romans. And if that's true, and I actually tend to agree, then verses 31 to 39 are the very peak of the summit of Mount Everest, of all of Scripture. From this vantage point in Romans 8, 31 to 39, you can sort of look out across the Himalayas, if you will, of the rest of the Bible and see all the various mountain ranges and valleys and all the different terrains and all the different landscapes and vistas. You can see it all from here. This is the culmination, the grand pinnacle of God's word to his people. So, It's one of those passages where, in a very real sense, I just sort of want to get out of the way and ask that the Spirit of God would speak to the people of God through the Word of God because you cannot improve this text. There's nothing I can say that's going to make it better or even more clear. I just sort of want to be a little bit of a tour guide to tie a couple knots on the rope and lead us through to say, this is the most glorious thing you will ever hear read in your whole life. So with that said, Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, let me pause right there. That's the gospel. I don't know what you think about when you think about the gospel. That is the gospel. God for you. It is uncommon to any other faith construct, any other system of belief in the cosmos. God, the sovereign creator, for you. So just right there, if you don't know how else to say the gospel to your friends, family members, or the person in your mirror, God for you. That's the gospel. It's such good news. He's for you. Please notice there is no merit associated with this. God for you. Let me continue. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. This great culmination, this climactic end point of the book of Romans chapter 8. 
So far we looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3, the doctrine of condemnation. All have fallen short. Chapters 4 and 5, the doctrine of justification. God has found us guilty. Dead to rights, guilty of sin, but he has declared the unrighteous righteous because God says so. Chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 are, I'm sorry, 6 and 7 and 8 are all about the doctrine of sanctification, being conformed to his image. Last week, we looked at Paul's golden chain of salvation, how God moves and acts in the life of a person. And we looked at these, what we call these six undeniable affirmations of what God has done. That we as believers, we are foreknown from before the foundations of the earth, before creation, God knows you as a person. He knows you. There is intimate, experiential familiarity with you even before the creation. You are foreknown. You are predestined. You are called. You are conformed. That is, sanctified ever increasingly into the image of the Son of God Himself. You are justified. You are glorified. It's all future history. It's already and not yet. And so Paul's going to take that from those six undeniable affirmations. He's now going to ask seven questions technically, but really there's just five. A couple of them are just his literary style of writing. Five, what we'll call unanswerable questions. He asks five hypothetical questions, and they are unanswerable because the obvious answer is nothing. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Nothing. These questions aren't even real questions because there's no answer to them. So we want to look at these five questions. Nothing could ever, ever accomplish separating us from the love of God. So I want to walk back through these verses again briefly just to sort of draw our attention to some things, and then we'll try to apply it. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? When he says these things, he doesn't just mean the preceding two verses of the golden chain of salvation, although that's in view. He means everything he's written in Romans thus far. The gospel of God, in which Paul tells us his theme of Romans, that it is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. What shall we say to these things? So what? What does it matter? Now what? Is what Paul is saying as he anticipates his readers' reactions to what he has written in these churches in Rome, going through what they're going through, what shall we say to these things? How shall we respond? How shall we now think? How shall we now feel? How shall we now live? What do we say? If God is for us, or perhaps better, since God is for us. Now that is an astonishing statement that Paul makes. Since God is for us. Now, I know that in our day and age, we rightly sometimes rail against sports teams or athletes that try to say that God's on their side. He's not. But in this case, when it comes to the eternal life of the believer, Paul says something shocking. God is for us. God is actually on your side. That's the gospel. We sort of expect for Paul to say, hey, this is really good news. God has brought us onto his side, which is true. But that's not Paul's point here. Paul's saying, don't you understand? Have you ever fully received the gravity that God is actually for you? I remember one of my great heroes in the faith, Pastor Ray Stedman, who's now with the Lord. He talked about and he wrote about extensively that his whole life, his marriage, his parenting, his ministry turned around completely when he finally believed that God was for him that he wasn't trying to work against God or that God wasn't working against him, trying to throw things in his way just to make him better. No, 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 that God's actually for 
him. Changed everything. And I wonder for you and for me, have we ever really heard that, that God is for us, that he literally is on our side? That's an astonishing truth. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, candidly, lots of people. And they have been for many, many centuries. Tons of people have always been in opposition to and resistance of the gospel of God because it's offensive to the humanistic idea of self-reliance. Tons of people are going to resist. It's an ancient, ancient idea. People have always been resistant to the gospel, telling us things that God is against us. We will always have opposition to the message of the gospel in this life, but it all counts for nothing compared to the fact that the sovereign king of the cosmos is for us. And just how for us is this God? How much is he on our team? Well, verse 32 is the answer. He who did not spare his own son. Now Paul, as he typically does, sort of subtly references a key Old Testament passage. He's going to reference here Genesis chapter 22 in which Abraham takes Isaac, his own son, up the mountain. And the text says, because you did not spare your own son, I have supplied a lamb, a substitute, so that Isaac does not have to die. But Paul says, because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This Jesus, this second self of the Godhead Trinity, God himself, sinless, Innocent, undeserving, was given for the likes of us. I remember in the year 2000, my firstborn son was born. And I remember being in the hospital there at St. Luke's Hospital in downtown Houston, holding this little bundle of cheeks and, and teeth. Not teeth yet, but just cheeks and hair, actually. He didn't have teeth when he was born. He was just big. <laughs> this little bundle of amazingness and awesomeness. And my buddy Dave from Houston came in and he said, hey, we talked about it and all this stuff. He said, can you imagine? He kind of had a little tear in his eye and he said, can you imagine? Would you ever give this boy up to save some terrorists? And I almost throat punched him. Like, what are you talking about? No, I was offended and horrified at the idea. Give him up? This wonderful, perfect little baby? For them, they're evil. And it hit me. This is precisely what God did for us, for me, except times a trillion trillion. This rebel, fallen, corrupted by sin and trespass and iniquity, he gave his own son and there was no substitute lamb and he became all that I deserve, all that we deserve. He gave him. And so Paul makes an argument from the greater to the lesser. Do you not know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? If he gave his only son... He did not spare his only son. Will he not also give you every great thing? It's an argument of logic. It is very compelling. If God gave Jesus, do you not think he's also going to work in your life with a wonderful plan now? That doesn't mean you're going to enjoy all of it because we have a different set of expectations. We want that which we want and think that we need because we actually prefer pleasure to pain. But God loves us so much that he will lead us through those seasons of challenge because he is for us. And his purpose and his plan is to conform us ever increasingly into the image of his son. 
He's not going to give us the things that we think we need necessarily. And so we have the opportunity and the privilege to reset and recalibrate our expectations to his, but always trusting, oh, wait, he's for me. And he has a wonderful plan for my life. And if he could do this day all over again, he wouldn't change a second. Now that is comfort to the believer that we all need as we walk around every day of our lives. Paul's going to continue with his Old Testament references to show this has been part of God's plan from the very beginning. This is not a novel thing in the New Testament. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul's statement here, the way he phrases this is very bizarre. It's like he says, look around. Who can accuse you of anything? Nobody. Why? Verse 33. Because it is God who justifies. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 50, the servant song. And Paul does something really fascinating. And he equates the servant of Isaiah 50 with Jesus, but also with you and with me. It's really interesting because we have union with Christ. Look around. Who can bring a charge against you? Who can, who can actually accuse you and charge you of anything? Look around. Is there anyone who, who can charge you? Now this is fascinating because Paul is writing to the church of Rome these various different churches, there were multiple churches in Rome, and they were going through all kinds of opposition. There were 10 emperors in the Roman Empire who each brought horrifying persecution and opposition against Christians. Paul is ultimately killed under Emperor Nero, who was a very, very, very sick human being who delighted in destroying Christian lives and Christian families. He would have Christians crucified but before they died he would coat them in tar and light them on fire and place them as torches in his garden for his garden parties he delighted in that sort of thing so Paul when he writes you're facing resistance he knew exactly what he was talking about and they knew what he was talking about they were experiencing it they were having their families stripped from them tortured killed losing their homes losing their businesses losing everything why Because Nero and many of the Roman emperors were accusing the Christians of being cannibals. Because these Christians had what they called love feasts in which they would eat the flesh and drink the blood of a person. They misunderstood communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And so it became open season on Christians. You could persecute and kill them with no charges brought against you because these people were socially and morally reprehensible. Now I know it's hard to imagine a government that decides that Christianity's ethic and moral is morally reprehensible. But just go with me and imagine a situation like that. That's happening in Rome. But Paul says, in the grand scheme of things, look around. Who can bring a charge against you? It is God that justifies. He is the one that, while he finds guilt, he declares righteous. That's the gospel. He continues on with his Isaiah 50 reference in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Look around. Who can condemn you? He started off chapter 8 with saying, there is now therefore no condemnation. You cannot ever receive condemnation. Christ Jesus is the one who died. He is the one who received all of the condemnation, all of the curse and the shame and the pain and the death that sin deserves. Jesus received that. He is the one that died. But more than that, who was raised. He was vindicated and validated as the sinless son of God because God raised him to life, raised him to walk in newness of life. The one who died for us, who is the expression of God's love, oh, guess what? Now he's alive and he's alive forevermore. But wait, there's more. 
He is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. This one who was condemned for our sake removed any potential of future condemnation for us forever. And he's alive. Not only is he alive, he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he intercedes for us. If you're a Christian, the reason you are still a Christian is not because you're Captain Awesome, not because of your strong faith, not because you squint really hard and clench really tight when you pray. No. <laughs> If you're a Christian, the reason you're still a Christian is because Jesus himself holds you with all power and passion. Can you lose your salvation just as soon as Jesus lets you go? Which means just as soon as Jesus sins and is guilty of ungodding God. It is an impossibility, theologically speaking. Can't happen. He intercedes. Jesus whispers into the right ear of God the Father everything that you need. And he knows it better than you do because his spirit indwells you eternally. It's really, really good news. You see, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Paul continues with these questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See, God loves you. And Paul wants you to know that the love of God and the love of Christ are essentially synonymous because Christ is God. He's going to say this over and over again, the love of God, the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Interestingly, this ends up being a prophetic list of the very things that the Apostle Paul himself will go through in his life until he meets his death at the end of a sword in Rome under Emperor Nero who beheads the Apostle Paul. Shall any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Now he asks the question in verse 35. He'll answer it in verse 37 with an Old Testament reference in verse 36. So we kind of have to understand verse 36 is a little bit of an Old Testament reference parentheses. But it's very interesting what Paul does not ask in verse 35. We kind of want him to ask this, but he doesn't because it's an obvious answer. We want Paul to ask, shall the love of Christ separate us from tribulation and persecution and famine and nakedness and hunger and the sword? But the obvious answer is no. The love of Christ does not separate us from those things. We will continue to experience those things in this world. We who are believers still have unredeemed physical bodies. Your physical body has not yet been redeemed. It can't be. It has to die first. And we live in a world that is unredeemed. It is still corrupt and fallen. Not evil, but it is corrupt and fallen. Therefore, we will always meet opposition. We will always have resistance. The love of Christ does not separate us from those things. We will still experience them and enter into them. That has been the way of the messianic community, the people of God for millennia. Paul says, adjust your expectations accordingly. And just to make sure we get it, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. Here in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is David talking about what's happening in Israel. Not because of their disobedience, simply because they're Israel, the people of God, they're being persecuted and killed. So the thought goes like this, well, gosh, I'm a Christian. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Then why are things so hard? Like our Barton family seal says, Barton, everything is hard. But doesn't God love me? Jesus loves me. Why are things so difficult and challenging and against the grain and uphill and into the wind? 
because that's to be expected in this life. There is fallenness of my flesh. There is fallenness of the world order. And we have an enemy who opposes the plan of God. It's not a surprise when it comes to Paul says, no, those things are going to happen, but they are inconsequential on the eternal scope of things. They're going to happen, plan accordingly. And when they happen, realize God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Now, verse 37, he answers the question. No, no, those things will not separate us from the love of Christ. In all these things, we are more than conquerors because we're so smart and have memorized Philippians 1. No, that's actually not what it says. We are not Captain Awesome. We are more than conquerors. Why? The Greek is amazing. We are hyper-conquerors. We are super-overcomers. Why? Because of Him who loved us. Because of our union with Christ. We are found in Jesus. Through Him who loved us. In case you didn't catch this, God loves you. That's a wonderful plan for your life. And Paul wants you to hear that again and again. Verse 38, the key the hinge, the focal point of what Paul wants us to all receive from having read eight chapters of Romans. For I am sure, I prefer the word convinced, pepesmai in the Greek. It's this weird word he will use no place else in all of his writings. It's in this strange grammatical perfect tense, which means it is true and it will continue to be true forever. It is true now with continuing effect forever. I am convinced and am ever utterly convinced is what Paul says. I love that because being convinced leads to convictions which changes conduct, which means Paul will willingly, joyfully, not flippantly, but joyfully go into those things like famine and hunger and nakedness and shipwreck and beatings and the sword and his death because at the end of the day, it's Jesus. Verse 38, for I am sure, I am convinced. And then he's going to give these wonderful, wonderful, encouraging bookends to explain that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Neither death nor life can separate us. Now, what all does that encompass? Uh, That would be everything. Those are the two possible states of existence for a human being, life or death. There's nothing in between. Trust me, I grew up in the Texas Panhandle. That's close, but no, it's either life or death. There's nothing in between. Nothing in life or death can separate us from the love of Christ. So he's being as exhaustive and inclusive as he can. Not only that, not, even, not death nor life, nor angels nor rulers. This is Paul's way of expressing the spiritual realm. Angels are holy angels, sealed in their righteousness. Rulers refer to wicked angels, sealed in their evil. And they don't get another chance. They never get the opportunity to receive grace. So what's Paul saying here? Neither death nor life, the states of human potential existence, nothing of the spirit realm whatsoever can separate us. Angels are powerful dudes, man. They're like, wow, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Okay, so now we're going to go all across time as well. Nothing in the material world, nothing in the spirit realm, nothing that exists in time can separate us from the love of God, nor powers. Now, some think this is a reference to more spirit realm beings. More than likely, this is actually a reference to human governmental systems, governmental regimes that are opposed to the power of God, i.e., the Roman Empire. Cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Nor height, nor depth. This is an idiomatic expression, sort of really means things in heaven, things in hell, things in 
in space, things under the earth. So we've covered space, we've covered time, we've covered the material world, the physical, the spiritual realm. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I love that Paul adds this, because this is basically everything ever anywhere. So let me, let me make sure we understand there are two categories of things which exist. There is creation, all that has been created in the material and the spiritual world, and then there is God. There is God, he, would, he that is above the line of creation, and then there is everything else that has ever been in existence that has been created. There is nothing that has not been created by God save God himself, the uncreated one. And so Paul is completely exhaustive. Nothing else in creation can separate us from the love of God. Why am I making such a big deal about this, waving my, heart, my arms like this? Because, brother or sister, you are a part of creation. Unless you're God and looking out across the room not seeing... Uh, no, no, no. You're a created person, a created being. You're a, th- you're a thing. You've, you've got stuff. You were created. Therefore, not even you can separate yourself from the love of Christ. I've heard people do all kinds of exegetical gymnastics to try to make that passage mean something else. Like, well, you could because what you have to see is that you're not actually a part of depths or heights. No, 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 no. Paul is very emphatic. This is the grand climax of eight chapters of Romans. Nothing can separate. Why? Because the Spirit of God indwells, Jesus holds, and the love of God is for you. Are you convinced yet? Because if you are, it'll change everything. See, he loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the sphere. He's the locus. He's the arena in which we have our our being, our movement, our life in God. It's because of Jesus. Nothing can separate us. He he loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. So, are you convinced? Well, I want to help convince you by giving three very quick implications that we can apply to our lives that I hope will influence and impact our thinking. Number one goes like this. Never interpret God through your circumstances. Never interpret God through your circumstances. You will encounter trouble. You will encounter resistance. You will encounter opposition and suffering and trial and tribulation. That does not change a thing about God, nor his character, nor how much he loves you and is crazy about you. I don't mean in the hallmark sense where he's like, oh, you're fresh. I mean, he has a wonderful plan for your life, better than you could ever, ever conceive of. Never interpret God through your circumstances. This fallen world, our enemy, and sometimes even our own flesh and fallenness try to convince us that God is not for us, that he's actually against us. What's my illustration? Genesis chapter three. In the Garden of Eden, Perfect, innocent environment. Adam and Eve walking around in the cool of the day having conversation with God. And the serpent shows up and he says, effectively and essentially what? God's not for you. He's holding out on you. You're missing out on something better. And the fall of mankind occurs and we have been paying those dividends for millennia because someone failed to believe that God loved them, was for them, and had a wonderful plan for their life. They decided, I will seize this, and I know better. How'd that work out? Do you have any idea how many billions
millions of people have died because of that failure to trust that God was for them. Billions have experienced death and trauma and violence and aggression because they failed to believe that God was for them. Never interpret God in light of your circumstances. God loves us utterly and infinitely, no matter what is going on in the cosmos. We have a tendency to analyze all the things that are going on in our lives and the lives of the people that we love, and we think things shouldn't be like this. If God really was for me, then I wouldn't be in this struggle. But we've said this several times throughout the Roman series, and I want to say it again, quoting David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said, talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. When you begin to feel like God is holding out on you or he is disappointed in you or he is disinterested in you or that he's unable or that he's cranky or fussy or distant, no, 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 no. You're gonna have those fleshly whispers that'll come to you from your enemy, from your own flesh. Tell yourself the truth from God's word. He is for me. He loves me. He has a wonderful plan for my life. Or even ratchet it up a notch. Go full Martin Luther who would stand in the center square of Wittenberg, Germany and scream at the devil, yes, I'm a sinner, what of it? Maybe don't do that because we already know. It's good. Never interpret God through your circumstances. When the grumblings of your flesh whisper that he is not for you, tell yourself the truth. Second point goes like this. God cannot love you any more. Now, I had to pause because in the first service, I said, God can't love you anymore. It's not what I meant. God can't love you any more than he already does. His love for you cannot grow because he loves you with the same love with which he loves Jesus, the Son of God. People, we have been invited in, indeed, grafted in and adopted into the same love of the triune Godhead. How the Father loves the Son is how He loves you because you have union with Christ. He cannot love you anymore. In other words, a lot of our lives, we've said this before, is simply learning to live like we're actually forgiven. We are to grow in our acceptance of the fact that we are accepted. What if you and I, like Paul, were fully convinced and we got to have this full, the big churchy word is, assurance. We just knew that we knew that we knew. Above all else that was going on, this much we knew. The love that God has for you is complete. It cannot ever improve. So you and I get to live like our life's work is already complete because in a sense, it is in Christ. That assurance provides an arena of freedom that we get to live, not worrying if we're somehow displeasing God, but knowing that he smiles on us. And if he had to do it all over again, he wouldn't change a single cell about you because he loves you. He's for you. He's a wonderful plan for your life. Then we get to live lives of loving purpose because we love him too, not because we're afraid of making him angry at us. Do you hear that? This is why marriage is a perfect picture of how God binds himself to us. When you stand at an altar and I marry you, some of you in this room I have married, you essentially say, I promise no matter what, whether you get sick, whether you get ugly, whether you get poor, whether whatever, I'm not ever going to divorce you. I promise. And that assurance provides an arena of freedom and joy it doesn't restrict and bind. It says, because I promise to never divorce you no matter what, you can live a life of freedom. Isn't that beautiful? This is what God says to us at our conversion. I 
promise, no matter what you ever, ever do, I will never divorce you. I cannot. I love you. I'm for you. I have a wonderful plan for your life. And it frees us up to love him as well and live lives of conviction. Which brings me to my third point. God cannot love you any less. He can't love you anymore. He can't love you any less. Let me rephrase that. Let me reiterate that like this. Your disobedience, or in my case, my foolishness, does not negatively impact or influence God's love for you whatsoever. Of course, when you and I sin, not if, when we sin, of course there will be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Of course there will be the pang and the sting of the sharp two-edged sword of the Word. Of course there will be the conviction of accountability of the people of God. But that's all because He loves you. Not because He's just a strict disciplinarian. Not it at all. The very fact that we run from God when we sin is evidence that we don't practically believe that He's for us. Oh, I've messed up. I'm ashamed of myself again. I'm just going to sit for these three or four days or three or four weeks in my own shame grease and be miserable, worthless, in a gray malaise for days or weeks. And we think that God's up there going, that's right, young man, you're in timeout. You come out whenever I say so. All the while, he's got his face pressed up against the door saying, no, I'm for you. This is finished. It's been atoned for. You are forgiven. You are accepted. And while you're sitting in your own shame grease, you're no good to anybody that I have placed you near to bless them. But we fail to forget, to, to remember that. We forget it. But he cannot love us any less. I know so many conservative evangelical Protestants who have a very good conservative evangelical Protestant theology but practically and functionally, they're operating Roman Catholics. Let me explain what I mean. Oh, we know that God's good and He sent His Son Jesus and he, he died for my sins and all those things we're supposed to say, but then we mess up and we feel like we've got to somehow make penance. Gosh, I, I screwed that up. I've got I to gotta not say these bad words for the next four days. I've got to do two extra chapters of Song of Solomon, not understand what it means, but get an extra two highlighters you want to Instagram it and all these kinds of things. And I've got to do all these things. Great many Protestants do penance, which is a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. God loves us because of Jesus. God could not possibly love Jesus any less, and so it is not in any way up to us. See, he loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. And so as I thought about this passage this week, and was I getting it? Was I fully receiving and appropriating it? I had to be honest with myself and say, no. No. I don't fully get the glory and the grandeur of this grace. So I prayed, I, I, I need more help in understanding why this is such a big, profound deal to my life. And the Lord led me to a passage. So I just want to illustrate how this passage, I think, comes to bear for all of us thus. It's a familiar story told to us by uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 8. It's the story of the adulterous woman. Most of you have probably heard this story or are familiar with this story. You probably know how this goes. This woman is caught in the act of adultery. Now, we try to do all sorts of exercises and gymnastics to make it sound like, well, she was framed. This isn't really fair. It's not what the text says. She's caught in the act of adultery. So for a moment, I want you all to use your sanctified imagination. 
And I want you to think through the story of the adulterous woman, and I want you to place yourself as the central figure of the story. No, not Jesus. This person who through a whole series of choices, a lifestyle of choices, has found herself or himself in a situation in which they have sinned horrifically and they've gotten caught. I want you to place yourself there. You've been the product of a whole lot of nature, of your personality type, of also of nurture, of your upbringing, of your societal and cultural confines, and all of those things have brought you to the place where you've done this very bad, horrible, shameful thing, and it's now been brought to the light of day. Maybe you are the victim of some oppressive group of people that are harming you or abusing you or taking advantage of your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses, perhaps. But the point of the matter is, here you are, exposed, caught, dead to rights, guilty as sin. Now, we've kind of sanitized the story of the adulterous woman, but I want you to place yourself in this context because there she is, in a very graphic sense, caught in the very act. She's stripped probably almost naked and exposed, vulnerable, humiliated and ashamed, on her knees, and she's waiting for the first impact. They're going to stone her to death. They're going to throw rocks at her until she dies. And so there she sits, knowing that she deserves this. She's guilty, waiting. How long before the first blow, when I am crushed, my bone snaps, when I am maimed, probably crippled, hopefully released to death soon? How long? How long? I'm surprised it took me this long to get caught, but now I've been caught. How long before it's over? And as she waits and she cringes, just waiting, just waiting, just waiting, she looks around and notices that, <laughs> well, there's no one around. They've all left. She didn't quite know what's happened. But then she looks up and she sees Jesus. Now, we love Jesus, but I want you to think about her in that context, in that story. What was her first thought? Was she thinking, oh, praise God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? No. She's probably thinking, oh, great, a rabbi who's going to pile and heap additional shame upon me and tell me what I've done wrong and why I'm such a vile creature. Instead, what does Jesus say to her? What does Jesus say to you? It's what Paul is telling us in Romans 8. Jesus looks at her and he says, where'd everybody go? Where are they? Is there no one here to bring a charge against you? See Romans 8. She says, no, but there should be. I'm busted. I'm guilty. I've done this thing. Is there no one here to condemn you? No, but there should be and there could be. I'm guilty. Is there no one here who will throw a stone at you? No, but I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Is there anything or anyone who can keep me from loving you? And at that point, it lands on her. It lands on you. And you go, stop, stop, stop. I can't hear this. I am guilty. I have done this thing. I deserve what's coming. And he says, shh, 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 shh. I have already been condemned. I have died. And what's more, I have been raised. And what's more, I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. It is God who justifies. It is God who declares righteous, not you. Are you guilty? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But because of what I have done, I declare you 
righteous. Now, do you think she would have been convinced? Are you convinced? I pray that you will be convinced more than anything else that you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and that you and I will walk every moment of every day never forgetting that. So that our conduct comes out of our being convinced which comes from our convictions. This is God's will for your life. Be convinced. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, for this great grand culmination of Romans chapter 8. And I pray, God, that not what I have said, but what you have spoken, what you have said in your word, would sound forth and not return void. And Father, if there is still someone here this morning who is awaiting condemnation because they don't know you, they've not felt the acceptance and the forgiveness, would you usher them out of death into life? Would you do for them what you have done for the rest of us? Would you seal them and indwell them by your spirit? Would you give them courage to speak with someone they know and love and trust about this? Would they begin to understand this first flicker that you love them, you're for them, and you have a wonderful plan for their life? May salvation come to this house again, O God. And Father, for the rest of us who are forgiven, Would you remind us all over again of the glory of the gospel, that you are for us, that you've promised to never divorce us. No matter what we do, you can't love us anymore. You can't love us any less. Help us to see you for who you are, not for our circumstances. And may we therefore live lives of impact and influence to those around us who need to see the truth of the gospel. May it be, Father, exactly as I have prayed or better, because you're good and you're for us. So we pray all these things, God, together, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.